Welcome to PageCast, a podcast series brought to you by Jonathan Bull Publishers, aimed to give you the story behind the story. By interviewing the authors responsible for some of your most loved books, we explore the thoughts, ideas, emotions, and creative processes that led to the writing of these books. If you're a reader with a zesty interest in people and stories, do stick around and enjoy what PageCast has to offer. Final, why we kneel and how we rise. Michael Holding was born in Jamaica in 1954 and played 60 tests for the West Indies between 1975 and 1987, taking 249 wickets. After retiring from the game, he became a commentator, mainly working for Sky Sports. In Why We Kneel, How We Rise, Holding shares his story together with some of the world's most iconic athletes. He delivers a powerful and inspiring message of hope for the future and a vision for change, while providing the background and history to an issue that has been dodged by the world for many centuries. Through the prism of sports and conversations with its legends, this book explains how racism dehumanizes people, how it works to achieve that, and how it's been ignored by history and historians, and what it's like to be treated differently just because of the color of your skin. In this episode of PageCast, Holding will be in conversation with longtime friend and former South African cricket commentator, Trevor Quirk. Thank you very much. Uh, and hello, Mikey. Hey, long time no see, no talk. <laughs> Hi, Quirky. Yes, it has been a long time. COVID has disrupted things. How are you? I'm very well, very well, thank you. Just Good. freezing cold here in Cape Town, I might tell you. In the whole of South Africa, in fact, it's uh, very cold. And I know you're having nice weather there. so uh, It is very lovely. nice. Yeah. Well, now, I mean, for those of joined us uh, obviously uh, Mike Holding is uh, simply one of the greatest fast bowlers that ever lived um, in the world of cricket he's tops West Indian cricket of course number one Jamaica and he also played of course uh, county cricket he played in Australia and um, uh, Mikey uh, you know it's extraordinary that you managed to play 60 test matches in a time when people didn't play as many matches as they might have. I mean, your career stretched from 1975 to 1987 and you played 60 test matches. In that time, uh, many would have played over 100 test matches. Um, you know, that's how it was. But I must say, in those 60 test matches, you took 249 test wickets, which is extraordinary, uh, at an average of just over 23, which is fantastic in itself. Uh, and the fact that you also played about 102, I think it was ODIs, One Day Internationals, is, is sort of... Uh, but the test match cricket is, I think, probably what you uh, regarded as the most uh, important thing uh, in your life. Um, and I've had the joy of getting to know Mike through, thank goodness, I didn't have to face him because uh, he was called Whispering Death, uh, mainly because of his, his long but languid sort of silent run-up. And then when he propelled that missile, it came at a frightening speed. And that's why 
he was nicknamed Whispering Death. And uh, so I'm lucky that I never, ever had to face you, Mikey. Um, but it's been wonderful to be able to commentate with you uh, around the world. And uh, we've had some wonderful times. For sure, definitely. Don't forget Jamaica. We won't go into that story, though, quirky. <laughs> I remember Jamaica so well and uh, working with you at Sabina Park. And, and then you invited us to the horse racing. And when I say us, I'm talking about my very good, my best friend, my dear late friend, Robin Jackman, who died on Christmas Day. Yes. Uh, yeah. And um, terribly sad. Uh, and I miss him so much. But uh, we were commentating with you in, in the West Indies, in Jamaica, and you invited us to the races. Now, I haven't told uh, those that have joined us that uh, as passionate as you were about cricket, your second great passion in life is horse racing. Definitely. Am I right? Definitely. Yeah. It's all well, I that day, you told Jackers and I to put on our jackets and ties uh, because we were being invited by you to the chairman's suite or box or whatever at the races. And when we got there, uh, we looked at the card, and I remember the first race that was about to take place, there was a horse called the Silver Fox Silver running. Fox. <laughs> the Silver Fox. And Jackers' um, nickname was the Silver Fox. So I said to him, Jackers, well, this is just too coincidental. We've got to put a bit of money on this. So we consulted with you and you said, don't be stupid. You're just going to waste your money. The thing's about 100 to 1. And, but we didn't listen to you because we felt it was just too coincidental that there we were racing in Jamaica and a horse called the Silver Fox is running. Well, I think it, were, it, it delayed the start of the next race. It came so far behind. <laughs> <laughs> you remember that, Mike? Yes, I remember it clearly, definitely. Oh, wonderful. We had um, some good times, Quirky. We did indeed. We had some wonderful times. And uh, you've had some wonderful times, not only as a, a, a great cricketer, but also, of course, as a, a commentator around the world. And um, this new book of yours, I think your first book that I remember reading was No Holding Back. Well, uh, there was one was before that. There was Whispering Death, which was quite some years ago, from the late 80s. And then No Holding Back was 2010. And now this one. Okay, so what brought about this one? Well, Quirky, as you know, this one has absolutely nothing to do with cricket. This one is about racism, and what brought it about is what took place last year when Sky invited Ebony Rainford Brent and myself to talk about the Black Lives Matter movement and the murder of George Floyd in America and the demonstrations and all that. And of course, we did a video. Ebony Rainford Brent and myself did a video which they showed leading up to the start of the first day's play, England versus the West Indies at Southampton. But as you know, Corky in England, you never can be sure, absolutely sure you're going to be getting cricket. And as usual, it was raining. So there was a delay in the start of play. And after they showed the video, Ian Ward, who was hosting the days, 
activities turned to me and said, you know, what was it like to talk about that and to look down the face of a camera, down the lens of a camera rather, and talk about the, the issue. And that just set me off and I spoke a lot more about that what was said than what was in the video. And some I understand that it was over four minutes. I didn't realize I was speaking that long. But the reaction that I got after me talking about it on Skype, the amount of feedback I got, quirky, people from all over the world, even friends of mine in South Africa. And one gentleman in particular, not gonna call any names, his message was, Mikey, I heard you. I'm glad you said what you said and it needed to be said. And it just started building and building and more and more people, more and more feedback. Terry and we got in touch. And eventually with all the bombardment of people from all over the world saying, you can't stop there, you have to take it further. I decided to write the book. Yeah, I remember, uh, I think it was last year, test match in, in Southampton, England were playing the West Indies. And yes. I had been watching to see what was going to happen. And I came in quite late on that on the field discussion that you were having with, with Ian Ward and, and so on. And, uh, and I was then furious that I'd missed most of it. But um, now having looked at the book, um, a lot of what happened is recalled in the book, of course. And yes. um, as you say, the reaction to it was um, absolutely unbelievable around the world. Yes, it was. It, you know, there was hardly any negativity that came my way. I got one letter in the next venue that we went to was up at South, um, Manchester. And there was one letter awaiting me there. One of the many letters that I got awaiting me there that was a little bit negative. Not tremendously negative, but just a little bit negative. I got no other negative feedback from anywhere, whether it was emails or whether it was text messages or WhatsApp messages or letters that came to me. And as I said, the, the amount of people that were telling me that they understood what I was saying, I even got messages from people telling me, Mikey, you have opened my eyes. I didn't understand what was going on until I heard you speak. And I related some of that in the book as well. Yes, indeed, you do. And uh, I mean, what was your reaction when you first heard about what has turned out to be George Floyd's murder? Because uh, Derek Chauvin, the, the, the policeman, has in fact been convicted. So yeah. was that something that really upset you, that uh, sort of created a boiled up feelings that you'd been maybe suppressing for a long time? Quirky, to be honest, it was no more than any other. In my mind, it was just another black man being killed in America. I'd seen it happen before. The difference with this one was that it was being filmed live and people were saw it as it happened. And people, many, many people saw the video afterwards. And many people saw the look on Chauvin's face as he was killing George Floyd. It seemed as if he, it, no remorse, no, it didn't matter. It, seemed as if he didn't even think it was a human being that he was he was killing there on the ground. And with the people shouting and saying, hey, the man, get your knee off the man, and pleading, basically. That is what made this one worse for a lot of people. But for me, it was just a matter of me thinking, here we go again. 
when is this ever going to stop? But again, with the demonstration, with people seeing it and all that, it just started to grow and grow and grow. And that is why Sky, in fact, decided that they needed to say something. They needed to take more of an active part. And that is how it came about with Ebony, Ebony Rainford Brent and myself doing the video because our immediate boss, Brian, who is not Sky, said, yes, we, we need to do something. Well, it's amazing that, that the film or the little video uh, that was shown on Sky um, was just prior to the Southampton rain delay. Yes, well, what had happened is that they had planned to show that video at lunchtime. But because it was raining at the time, they figured they would show it before the start of play because that would give us now an opportunity to talk more about it at that period. If they had waited until lunchtime, as you know, Quirky, you have a limited time at lunchtime. This now, with the rain falling and the covers on, they figured, well, we'd have a bit more time. So that's why they showed it before start of playing stuff at lunchtime. And that just gave the opportunity to expand on it. Because Ember the Rainford Brent was still in the commentary box. I was in the what we call the wet area for, for when it's raining. And the interaction took place between there and the commentary box. Yeah, it was it was amazing, amazingly fortuitous in a way that it then allowed the platform to to bring this all out. But as as a young person, um, and a, as a black person coming from Jamaica, did you feel that you suffered some sort of racism in, in your time and your youth? Very little, quirky. To be honest, very little. Growing up in Jamaica, I didn't experience any racism growing up in Jamaica. By the time I came along in, in Jamaica, the racism had pretty much died out. I heard racist stories about racism previously. And I related one in the book to a, about a friend of the family that I had heard about, which had happened in the 1940s. But me growing up in the 60s, 70s, I was born in 54. By the time I got into the 60s, I was becoming a teenager. Into the 70s, I was getting close to being 21, 20 years old, that sort of a thing. I didn't experience it personally. I started to experience it when I started to tour, when I went to Australia, when I went to England to play cricket. But every time I went to those places, I just told myself, this is not my life. I don't live this. So when I get back to Jamaica, I'm, I won't, I'll be rid of all this. So I, I didn't let it worry me. And even so quirky, when I went to Australia and when I went to England, it wasn't a regular feature. I experienced more good than bad when I went on tour. So it was easy to just say, brush it off and say, well, whoever that is, that he's a fool or she's an idiot or whatever, and just brush it off and move on. But I never experienced that at all. Now, the response to that uh, interview that you did during that rain-affected test match uh, provoked a whole lot of very famous black sportsmen to come to your support and also to contact you and, and, and talk to you about it. Uh, and, and as a result of it, the book contains your conversations with some of these all-time great sportsmen? Yes, well, in, in actual fact, two people contacted contacted me or contacted us about to get involved in the book. First of all, it was Thierry Henry. And he, when he contacted me, I still hadn't been thinking about writing a book. And I spoke to him on the phone for quite some time. 
And the last thing he said to me, we have to continue talking. And then Naomi Osaka, I got a message that Naomi Osaka wanted to, to get in touch because when she saw me on Sky Sports News the next day, not Sky Sports News, Sky News the next day with Mark Austin, and she heard me talking about my parents, about the fact that my parents' family pretty much ostracized her because she got married to a man that was that dark, a black man, basically, because she was a brown-skinned Jamaican. She perhaps identified with that because her mother being Japanese and her father being a black Haitian. And she then said she, she, she wanted to get in touch with me. Those are the only two people that made the contact from their direction. Everyone else, all the other athletes, I went or reached out to them, asking them if they would get involved with the book. And then even so, Thierry Henry and Naomi Osaka, when they got in touch, the book was not in my thoughts at that point. I had to reach out back to them to say, would you be happy to get involved, involved in the book? There's one teacher, headmaster, from a school in Manchester here in England that we also interviewed. And he got in touch with me through the ECB. Because when he heard me on television, he sent an email to the ECB asking the ECB to then get in touch with me or to send it forward it to me. And when I decided to, to do the book, because of the contents of his email, I said, well, I have to reach out to him as well because I would love for him to be involved in the book. Because my book is about education quirky. I'm trying to educate people about racism, why it exists, how it has existed for so long, and why we need to get rid of it and the false narrative that we have been taught and all the brainwashing that has gone on. And when I say brainwashing, people get from the opinion that I'm talking about only black people got brainwashed. No, everybody got brainwashed because we're basically taught the same rubbish, a lot of it being rubbish. And we have to re-educate. And this headmaster being an educator was very, <coughs> sorry, was very important to be involved in the book. And when I reached out to him, he said, absolutely, no problem. Jeff Harriet is the name. Now, Terry, Terry Henry was, of course, a very famous footballer, um, not only for his country, but, I mean, he played uh, in the English Premier League for many years and, and was an exceptionally good footballer. And just very recently, there's been a, a nasty sort of racist incident when England lost to Italy in the European Cup final at Wembley and yeah. the match went to penalties and England missed three penalties and in the end lost on the penalty shootout to Italy and and three of the players that took penalties for England were not white players I mean Marcus Rashford, Nasaka, Sancho, they, they, and the, the, the terrible sort of backlash from, I suppose, disappointed English fans was that, you know, yeah, they all black guys. They missed the penalties. Yeah, and the, one of the, the tweets, I, I don't do social media, but of course it was all over the news. And one of them just said, oh, the black guys lost us, lost us the cup, you know. But quirky, that was bad. It was horrible. And sure. I can understand what the three black players felt. But in my opinion, those people that came out with those sort of postings on social media are in the minority. And there's evidence of that. Marcus Rashford, the youngster from Manchester, 
had a mural in one of the towns in Manchester on a big, big mural on the wall. It was defaced. No idea what was written on it because they covered it up. But immediately it was defaced and people in the area saw it. They went out and put black plastic over the defaced area of the mural. The artist went back, touched it over to get it back to what it was. And hundreds of people turned out in support of Rashford at that mural posting signs. Some of the signs just read Black Lives Matter. Some of the signs read We Love You, Marcus. And in total support of, of Marcus Rashford. So I know the people that were doing that sort of thing are in the minority. So it is there. Social media has amplified them. But I honestly believe those sort of people are in the minority. And the more we can push them to the sideline, Quirky, the more insignificant they'll become and the better off we will be. Now, you see, um, many of those people you're talking about that are in the minority and um, stir trouble and stir racism, they will say black lives matter, yes, but all lives matter. We've heard that so much during this whole narrative. What is your reaction to that? All lives do matter, but all we are saying, those who say black lives matter, is that for hundreds of years, their evidence is there, quirky, that black lives have not mattered. And it's no time for black lives to matter. And your former captain came out with a statement that I adored when people were talking about all lives matter. He said, all lives cannot matter until black lives matter. So if black lives do not matter, black is a part of all. So how can all lives matter if black lives do not matter? And as I said on so many occasions, there's an abundance of evidence to suggest that white lives matter, but not much evidence to suggest that black lives matter. And it's no time for people to recognize and accept that black lives matter. We, you were talking a moment ago about Naomi Osaka, the great tennis player, and um, she's made a fantastic name for herself. In fact, I think it's true to say that she probably um, earns the most money as a tennis player in the world at the moment because of yes. her wonderful achievements. And she's recently, of course, been uh, very controversially in the news because of pulling out of a major tournament uh, when she made her feelings known and there were almost threats about her being disqualified from the tournament um, and even maybe fined. And, and she sort of took a stance um, before that could happen, which is, it shows how strongly she feels about it. Yeah, well, she's a strong young lady. I, I was surprised to see how strong she is and her comments about the Black Lives Matter. And, and anyone who reads the book will see the chapter that she is involved in and see her commitment. She took a flight to Minneapolis to join one of the demonstrations. And of course, lots and lots of social media backlash. Oh, I suppose you're going to go and destroy the place and loot just like everybody else and all that sort of thing. And she just let it wash over her head. It's easy to say that's what she did. 
because outwardly that is what it looked like but it is obvious quirky that all that backlash and all that wicked hate 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 mail is has affected her that is why she says she just needs a break the mental stress she needs to get rid of that before she can go back and play tennis to the level at which she, she wants to play tennis i hope she can but at her age for her to take such a stand and if you remember quirky in the u.s open she wore seven different masks because of course covid everybody had to be wearing a mask she wore seven different masks for seven games that she played with the names of seven people that were murdered in america by police to amplify the situation that was taking place there and again to go back to the point that she was making about the stress of answering journalists um questions one of the questions that she was asked at the end of a game by a journalist almost in glee as if it's some fun oh which mask are you going to wear tomorrow these are dead people you're talking about and it's almost like it's like she's in a play oh you know let's guess which mask she's going to wear tomorrow that is upsetting yeah very it's upsetting flippant. yeah very flippant and you're talking about people who have been killed and that is the way you approach it that is why she you knows she was there at a man that she didn't want me answering all these questions because she's getting some ridiculous questions yeah well all of this is very graphically explained in the book comes out um in the conversation and the narrative in the book which is is fascinating reading and and, and wonderful stuff um, and the other of course great uh, black sportsman um that uh you have sort of talked with and and it forms a chapter is the fastest man on earth Usain Bolt, uh, who's a fellow Jamaican, and I, I have—I used to get up in the middle of the night to watch Usain Bolt run. For me, it was—and I'm a cricketer, and I love the game of cricket, and I'm passionate about the game like you are, and played the game at a decent level. But I don't think I've ever been more excited about something than watching Usain Bolt run and uh the chapter that with him is also tremendously fascinating and also in that chapter quirk you'll notice that he said he never experienced any racism in jamaica either no we are decades apart you're saying bolt would have gone to school a couple of decades after i did perhaps even to three decades because he's in his 30s i'm six or seven so decades apart but we had pretty much similar experiences in jamaica and he did not experience it until he left Jamaica as well. But the thing about all these athletes in our work, there are many of them. Even your own Makaya and Tini is, is in the book. You know, Adam Goods from Australia. Um, Michael Johnson, US, USA, Intias, Mohammed, Intihad of Mohammed, rather, young lady from, from, from America. First, Muslim woman wearing a hijab to represent America. That's you know, she had lots to, of different things coming at her. But all those athletes, those athletes are in the book primarily to show people that it doesn't matter 
where you're from, which country you're from. It doesn't matter how famous you are, because all these people are extremely famous people. It doesn't matter how rich you are, because as I just said, Naomi Osaka has earned more money than any other tennis player. Most of these athletes are multi-millionaires, but they still experience racism. And it's all down to one factor, the color of their skin. So that is why all these people are in the book, to show that. But my book, as I said earlier on, is primarily about education. And that is why there are so many facts and figures in the book to prove to people, because the narrative quirky has been white superiority. Only white people have ever established anything. Only white people have ever invented anything. Only white people have done great things in the world. Because when I was growing up, nobody taught me about anything that black people did. And in that book, I have revealed a lot of great things that black people have done that has been whitewashed, has been airbrushed out of, out of history. Nobody knows, for instance, that it was a black man who first put set foot on the North Pole. Nobody knows that it was a black man who invented the three-way traffic light. Nobody knows that it was a black man that introduced inoculation to the Western world long before the, the British doctor that they say experimented with smallpox and cowpox, long before him. Nobody knows until I said it on Sky that it was a black man that invented the carbon filament to make the electric light bulb work. Thomas Edison invented a non-functional light bulb. Nobody knows all these things. There are a lot of other things in the book that were never taught because they went against the narrative. And that is what this book is all about, educating everyone. You mentioned um, Kaya and Tini, and of course, Jonathan Ball uh, publishing the book here in South Africa. Um, and obviously, it's interesting to us as South Africans that there is the conversation that you have with Kaya and Tini. Yes. Uh, I had the, the privilege, obviously, of commentating on most of the 390 test wickets that, that Kaya took and, and played over 100 test matches. And yet, for many years, as is revealed in the book, he was purely uh, seen as a token selection um, because it, it had been decided that, you know, black people, non-white people, let's put it that way, should now be playing for South Africa. And yeah. I, I can understand how he felt aggrieved about being referred to as a token selection um, because of that. After performing as well as he did, and he, he spoke about it, that he had been playing tons of test matches, had lots of wickets, and yet he was never invited to any of the senior meetings, the meeting of the senior players, because he was looked upon as somebody that shouldn't necessarily have been there. He was only there because of a quota and because of laws and that sort of a thing. And it upset him a great deal. He spoke a lot about the fact that young white cricketers would come into the South African team. They would be invited immediately to these meetings. And he had absolutely no invitation and did not go. Sat down for breakfast, for instance. He would get to the breakfast room, sit at a table, and some of his teammates would come in and they would go to another table, never join him at his table. Another one would come in and join the others that had gone to other tables. So you can imagine what he was going through and what he felt. But it just shows you the strength of character of the man. For him to be dealing with all that 
throughout his career and still be as successful as he was and still going out onto the field because he was going out here to represent his country and no one was going to prevent him from representing his country at the very best that he could but again shows you the strength of character of the man quirky and people were talking about all the while that oh, he runs to the ground yes that keep it kept him fit but the primary purpose was because he knew they didn't want him on the bus and that was shocking to hear yeah i, I you know it's um it is but uh, some of his uh, fellow players would say no but he used to come on the bus and he was the life and soul of the conversation on the bus that he would go up and down the aisle in the bus mm -hmm. uh, chirping everybody and having fun and everybody reacted and loved it in in, in many ways uh, but I, I i hear what he says and you know in south africa having rid ourselves of the evil of apartheid um there are still many south africans that might say that your book um is a racism rant okay now uh which would be unfair um but what how do you react to a statement like that those who would say it's a racism rant quirky i'll ask them to show me in the book what is not a fact what is not factual as i said my book is about the facts and to teach and to educate people those experiences from the different people in the book as i said is to show people that irrespective of background irrespective of riches or fame it still happened to them so if they're going to call that a racism rant i want them to tell me exactly how to go about explaining racism and how to get rid of racism that's just like people talking about all lives matter they are trying to find some way of trying to pull down the story to try and pull down the narrative that we are trying to form if they want to have a constructive conversation i'm open to any one of them but don't just throw things out there racism rant tell me how explain to me why that is so explain to me why it could have been done any other way facts and figures i'm trying to solve a situation to solve a situation if you are sick quirky and you go to the doctor doctor is going to try to find out why you are sick before he can make you better and that book is to show people why there is racism and how to get rid of it of course in south africa with the way things have developed uh, since 1994 when uh, at last it was a one man one vote situation and obviously the anc a black government got into power uh, and now in sport in south africa there are quota systems a transformation uh, has taken hold and a lot of people will react and say but it's now racism in reverse in other words a lot of young white players are being left out because they white you see what i mean yes well i'll say two things about that correctly for one those who read the book will see that both makaya and myself do not agree with the quota system i will explain why i don't agree with it when you have a quota system what you're doing is ticking a box you're giving somebody a position because you're legislating that that person must get a position 
you are not putting someone in a position because they necessarily deserve that position. Now, when you put somebody in a position that doesn't necessarily deserve that position and you're just ticking a box, you could embarrass that person that you're putting in that position. That person might not be good enough to handle the job. I'm not just talking about cricket now. I'm talking about any aspect of life. Putting someone in a position that they cannot handle, you might embarrass them and make things worse because someone will look at that person in that position, seeing that they're not handling it, they're not able to do whatever they're supposed to be doing, and then start the argument, see, I told you, they're not good enough. They shouldn't be there. Or they're taking all jobs and can't do it. That is one of the reasons why I do not like quota systems. I can understand why perhaps South Africa want to do it because they want to change and change things quickly. I argue with people about that. I don't like to see orchestrated change. I have had conversations with Alibaka. You can talk to Alibaka and, and ask him about it. Because every time I come to South Africa, I go for dinner with him, we have long chats. And that, my, one of the big things that I talk to Alibaka about is not going into areas and plucking kids out of areas and putting them in these fancy schools. Is to make sure the facilities are available to everyone throughout South Africa. So that everyone has equal opportunity and the cream rises to the top. As you said, when you have a quota system, the numbers will not work because you may have whatever whatever number, seven four, say seven seven four. You can you must have at least four non-white. Suppose you have eight outstanding white cricketers. One of them has to be left out, which in my opinion should not be the case. And if you have a situation like that, you're gonna start getting people upset. People are going to start finding ways to pull at the system to try and destroy it, and that is counterproductive. The other thing that we're talking about now, where, where it comes to quota systems and black and white and all that sort of thing, quirky, is what happened to Makaya Ntini. Makaya Ntini, great fast bowler, but because of the stigma surrounding what we're talking about, the quota and token player, he was never ever meant to feel as if he belonged. And how can you go around your life trying to perform and trying whatever job it is, thinking that you do not belong or thinking that the people around you think that you do not belong? That cannot be a good way to go. And I can understand why they want to put that system in place because they're in a hurry to see change. But I don't necessarily agree with it. And I hope that they can put enough infrastructure and teaching everything, whether it's jobs or cricket or sport, so that everyone can get an equal opportunity so that the cream can rise to the top. And when that happens, there will be no argument. Now, Mikey, you visited South Africa several times. Yes. When you came here, do, do, did you feel comfortable? Were you happy enough? in south africa or did you feel there was something not right every time i came to south africa quirky i enjoyed it because i made lots of friends black white indians all sorts of friends in south africa but i've had some instances and some experiences that were not very nice the very first time i came to south africa i'll relate this story to you staying in in santon the, the towers my wife and i you know my wife my wife is portuguese background so she's white 
we walk into a, a phone a phone store i won't call the name of the, the, the company and because i need a sim card for my phone first time the south africa i'm trying to get a sim card i walk into the store my wife and i she walks ahead of me to look at things on the wall and looking at things and i stop by the counter a gentleman is on the phone i just stop by the counter waiting on him because that's good manners. He's on the phone. You don't interrupt him. I don't know if he's doing business or personal or what, what is happening on the phone. So I just stand there and wait. He continues talking on the phone. I'm not paying attention to listen to what he's saying because I don't want to intrude on this conversation. My wife is walking around and after a while she sees me just standing there and comes back and stands beside me and says to me, what's happening? And I whisper to her, he's on the phone. I'm waiting on him. And he sees her out of the corner of his eye. And because she's white, he puts the phone down on the counter, quirky, and comes over to her and says to her, can I help you? And she says, actually, I am with him and points at me. And he turns his back, picks up the phone again and puts it back by his ear. And that's yeah. just one of the many instances. But again, as I have said, I've experienced more good than bad. So I allowed that to just run off my back like water off a dog. In sort of going into the book, Mikey, uh, I, I got the feeling that um, racism wasn't the rat. It was dehumanization of people, no matter of what race or color or creed for that matter. Well, dehumanization has been wicked throughout the history of the world. But the transatlantic slave trade was total evil and anyone who doesn't want to accept that that was total evil well i can't help you something has got to be wrong with you and when you look at the history of the transatlantic slave trade and what has taken place in america since when they supposedly abolished slavery and again those who read the book will see that slavery wasn't really abolished they just changed the name and had a different way of enslaving people and that is what I'm talking about when he's talking about the start of racism, the dehumanization of the black race in particular, because that is where the transatlantic slave trade was so evil. And we need to understand that we have progressed since that. A lot of great things that so-called slaves and former slaves and descendants of slaves have done as I said, has been airbrushed out of history because it didn't fit the narrative of white superiority, and we need to teach people about them. Um, when I read through the book, I find there's so much information, uh, which is so interesting, and I, I just get the sense that this must have uh, demanded a tremendous amount of research. Now, I know that Ed Hawkins sort of ghost was a ghostwriter with you, you know, yeah. on the book. Now, was that research done mostly by you or by Ed or, you know, it's it, because it's quite astonishing the facts and figures you come out with. A lot, a lot quirky. And we interacted with the research. What I would do with Ed, I would send Ed a lot of WhatsApp messages about particular stories about the, there's a doctor that's a lecturer talking about post-traumatic disorder and that sort of thing and post-slavery disorder. I sent that to him. He did research on the doctor and then used, built it into the story. And that is how we, we did it. He did a lot of research himself to find things and send to me 
to include in the book. And I say, yes, we, we need to include this. It was collaboration between the both of us. You know, when I spoke on Skype, there was a lot that I already knew. That's why I was able to mention it on Skype. But then afterwards, a lot of what has gone into the book after that me speaking on Skype, I didn't know. I had to go and dig it out and head on myself went digging and trying to find the facts. And as I said before, let someone come and contradict the facts in that book. Well, I mean, as you said earlier on when we were talking, the real purpose of the book is to educate people. Yes. Rather than rant or what it's to educate people. That is what the book is all about, Quirky, because without education, we will ne never get rid of this thing. We have white people and black people growing up in this world, some believing that they are superior, some believing they are inferior because of the nature of the circumstances and the society in which they grow. I make the point, and I said it on Sky that very first morning, no one is born a racist. You are converted by the environment in which you live. You don't see five, six-year-old kids, black, white, Indian, whatever, playing together and calling each other names. You do not see that. It's when they start to grow and get into the society in which they are growing up, and then that converts them. Because this, this racism is institutionalized, and people will have to accept that. It is systemic. It is institutionalized. And it's almost like it's natural. And we need to get rid of that institutionalized racism for people to understand that we are all human beings. Just to go back to South Africa, and we talked about it on Kaya and Tini, and that's an amazing story in itself. But I'm sure that you might have been approached, in fact, I know you were, because you talk about it also in the book, to join those rebel tours that came to South Africa. When we were, um, after the 1969-70 uh, tour by Australia here in South Africa, we were uh, ostracized in the world of cricket. And it lasted 22 years. They tried to breach the gap of no cricket by having those rebel tours. And the West Indies came here on two occasions. Yes. And I'm sure, as one of the great cricketers of the world at that time, that you were approached. Yes, I was. But there is no way I would be coming to South Africa during the apartheid regime, Quirky. If you are going to a country that has that sort of regime and that sort of system operating, what you are doing is endorsing it. You know, all this talk, I, you see a lot of people do a lot of talking, but their actions don't match their words. I won't call names again, but there are countries in this world quirky that people accuse of lacking human rights. And but you buy something and you look on the label, made in such and such. Again, not calling any name. And some of them boast about having factories in these countries because they are cheaper to have the factories in those countries. Well, I am not someone to talk one thing and do something else. If I'm not supporting a regime, I'm not gonna go to that country. And that is a simple reason why I would not have gone to South Africa during the apartheid regime. Because you're going there to support them. You're telling them that what they are doing is right. And everybody, well, not everybody, but hopefully the majority of people would have said that this apartheid regime was not right. So I couldn't go there. 
Now, obviously, the West Indies at that time were arguably the top test cricket nation in the world. Um, many great players, and I'm sure uh, would like to have had all of them, yeah, the, the great Viv Richards, um, Clive Lloyd, all those sort of people. Uh, and obviously many of them felt like you and didn't come. But yeah. quite a lot of big-name players did come. And uh, was it a purely a mercenary financial thing, do you think, or... And, and were they, as a result of coming to South Africa, did they get ostracised back home in, in the West Indies? Well, I think everyone would agree that they went to South Africa basically for the financial reasons. They were being paid a lot of money and they saw it as a way of making some funds. The guys from Jamaica suffered more than the rest of the cricketers from around the Caribbean because Jamaica at the time was under Michael Manley and... Very shortly after that, the, the Prime Minister changed. But under the Michael Mandel regime, everybody knew exactly what he stood for and what he thought about the apartheid regime, and he wouldn't support it and that sort of a thing. So when they came back to Jamaica, they, they didn't get jobs in Jamaica. Some of them left the country and that sort of a thing. But to go back to what South Africa were doing after being ostracized from world sport and world cricket, quirky, as I said before, I have a very good relationship with Ali Baka. Ali Baka was one of the main men, if not the main man, behind those rebel tours. And I've had lots of chats with Ali Baka. And people will say to me, because they see me with Ali Baka, and they say to me, how can you and Ali Baka be friends? And he was the man behind. I tell them straight up, I totally understand Ali Baka's world and what Ali Baka was trying to do. Ali Baka was a cricketer. He loved the game. He saw South Africa out of cricket, and he wanted to make sure that cricket did not die in South Africa. I would not think that Ali Baka was thinking to himself, oh, I'll just buy them, irrespective of what, where, where they are or who they are. I'll just buy them because he wanted cricket to survive. And I would not ever try to condemn Ali Baka as a cricketer wanting to make sure that cricket did not die in South Africa. I would not have joined, and I, he knew that. And I have told him that on many occasions that there was no way I would have come, but that doesn't mean that I'm going to say Ali Baka was a bad man. I must say, to me, as a, a cricket lover and passionate about the game and played in that era of the, the 70s and so on, uh, to me, the saddest thing ever was that our very good South African side with Barry Richards, Graham Pollock, uh, captained by, uh, by Ali Baka, Michael Proctor, all those guys, didn't get the opportunity of playing the great West Indian side that you were part of. That was one of the great tragedies of cricket to me. They, they were a little bit before us, though, quirky. <laughs> we, we were in the late 70s, 80s. You know, Ali Baka and those guys were a little bit before us. We played, you know, people like Crockett, great cricketer, Simon at Gloucestershire. He and Zaire Abbas and those guys at Gloucestershire, but it was still called Proctorshire because of the great cricket that he played for them. Barry Richards, we played against him in World Series cricket, so we got a little bit of interaction with, with those guys. But when it started referring to Ali Baka, he was a little bit before our time. But it would have been very interesting if the team that I played in in the 80s could have played against the best South African team, whether you want to go back before the 80s or whatever. 
because I saw Graham Pollock, for instance. I saw Graham Pollock come to Australia to play in a charity game for the Bradman Trust. And Graham Pollock must have been 50 or in his 50s at that stage. And I saw him back at that age quirky. And I was just thinking to myself, what was he like in his 20s? So I can imagine how great a player he would have been. But that is life. We can't always have what we want. Well, we're very lucky now in South Africa to be able to uh, purchase uh, the book uh, through Jonathan Ball Publishers, which are doing us great service. But of course, I, I need to know from you, what has been the response to the book so far? Fantastic response. All positive responses that I've had. I've had people on the streets here in England calling to me. I'm walking around, people calling to me. Oh, Mikey, people that I don't even know. Mikey, I like what I hear you saying on Sky. I listen to you on this radio station. I listen to you on TV and whatever. And I love what you're saying. As a matter of fact, I was on a morning program here in the UK. Good morning, Brit Good morning, Britney's call. And live on because the center camera here home. And the, by the end of the, the program, when I was on, on, on air, a couple came to my door and slipped a note through my letterbox. When I got up and went and opened the envelope, it was a, a card saying that they were listening to me and they wanted to thank me for what I said and that I had opened their eyes. I didn't know them. They put their address on it. It's a neighbor. So I went around there afterwards to, to meet them officially and to say thank you for the card and all that. But it's been all positive. I don't know social media. Perhaps on social media, somebody's giving me hell right now. I don't know. But from the actual interactions that I've had, it has all been positive. I've done over 30 interviews with TV, radio, podcasts, magazines, newspapers, and no one has had any pushback to say, oh, what you're saying is rubbish or this, nothing like that. And I still have about five or six more to do. So it has all been positive. What we need to do a quirky is not just an ordinary man on the street, because I have no problems with the ordinary man on the street. But what we need are the people who make policy, the people who go and formulate curriculums in school. Those are the ones that we need to get on board to understand that what has been taught is not right. And we need to teach the full history, not just history that suits one set of people. And until we can teach the full history, everyone won't understand where we're coming from and where we need to go. Well, I can certainly urge everybody that is in South Africa who might be listening or might not be, but who have the opportunity of buying the book of a tremendous read a wonderful read by a wonderful man. That's all I can say. And uh, I urge people to go out. And all the top bookstores, of course, will have it. And uh, really, they'll be doing themselves a favor by enjoying something and really appreciating what you're trying to do. I think it's wonderful. It's lovely talking to you, Mikey. Good to see you again, always. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of PageCast. We have an incredible lineup of author interviews, so head over to our Facebook and Instagram and follow Jonathan Ball Publishers to stay updated and in the know regarding future episodes. Thanks for your interest in the story behind the story. Happy reading from everyone at PageCast. <laughs>